गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्णभक्ताय तादभक्ताय नमो नमः प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग एंड वी आर कंटिन्यू विथ आवर सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स ऑन रैडिकल पर्सनलिज्म टुडे मीटिंग नंबर 19 and we will continue with our second part on the subseries on divine ignorance today talking about knowing through unknowing paradox and chaos but as usual to begin with let's make a brief recap of what we saw last week last tuesday first part of the divine ignorance series where we talked about can faith be nourished by doubt and of course the reply will be Yes. And we connected the beginning of this series with the previous series on Guru Tattva mentioning how the role of the guru at least in part his duty her duty is to create sacred sacred doubt in the disciples to take the students to a teachable moment where they open themselves and they remain in a liquid so to say flexible state of sacred doubt and unknowing not sure not not too sure about what they know and always open to knowing more. So we talked about how the goal is uncertainty and not certainty actually not don't take christian consciousness for granted basically and the importance to remain in a state again of wonder and a state of humility basically not trying to apprehend and capture everything not becoming addicted to predictability all of which has to do mostly with ego control mechanisms and we go the avishnavas have such a detailed description of life of transcendence of the life of god his leelas his in, his associates all, all the minutiae all the details of those interactions are such that there's a blessing but also it can be a curse in the sense that we can become addicted to certainty to feeling that we know everything about god and more than every other person and so on and that can take to arrogance to rigidity to fundamentalism so we have to be careful about that especially realizing we are approaching the infinite the infinity is our subject matter so to say of studying of knowing of loving so how much can we claim to fully know infinity mm-hmm. and infinity is in a state of eternal becoming also it's always expanding his own quote unquote limits to become more beautiful to love more to become all that he can be eternally mm-hmm. so in that sense uncertainty is the key and not certainty we have to reach that place that we may also call learned ignorance if we want to become wise first you have to learn to be ignorant instead of becoming again attached to the perks of the status quo security position certainty power control so also in that connection we mentioned how the opposite of certainty as counterintuitive as it may sound is uh the opposite of faith sorry as counterintuitive as it may sound is certainty certainty and faith are not synonymous doubt and faith are correlative terms because faith is in traveling to the unknown an openness to remain in that state we gave the example of the gopis and rasa lila in their avisar or love journey running behind the flute and entering darkness midnight the dark lord everything uncertain in gyansanya bhakti this type of loving that doesn't require knowing nothing required 
capturing the absolute in this case in one's head. And so that's the sacred dance the gopis represent and invite us to join in, in contrast with the survival dance that sometimes we dance, quote unquote, in this world, trying to capture and control and know attached to over attached to certitude and so on. And therefore we concluded our last meeting speaking about how an addiction to certitude implies basically competing with God, playing God, so to say, because if I want to know everything, omniscience, that gets closer and closer to the idea of omniscience, which is transcendent God, and that takes to the idea of omnipotence or full control. I want to know everything so I can control that which I know. So I want to be omniscient so I become omnipotent. But all those things have to do with God, not with us. So we may be pursuing those things, and that will be a form of what we may call functional atheism. We claim ourselves to be theistic and believers and so on, but in practice we will pursue those qualities that belong to the Supreme. So we, instead we have to allow sacred uncertainty to nourish our path as an, as an aspect of saranagati, our process of surrender. Allowing, I'm not in control and it's okay. And someone else is in control and is controlling everything through love and affection. So today we will continue touching on this topic of divine ignorance from a different perspective. The same topic, but through different terminology, through different viewpoints. Today, mainly concentrating on the principles of unknowing, paradox, and chaos, and how to know through those, how to know through unknowing, how to know through paradox, how to know through chaos. Mm -hmm. So we'll begin after our summary with the first part, which in which we'll be addressing the first of these three, knowing through unknowing. Then we will go to paradox, then we will go to chaos. Let's begin, uh, before going to paradox and chaos, let's begin with the first part, knowing through unknowing, or what we may call um, learning through unlearning. Also, it's another way to put the same idea. So in connection to this, something that comes to mind that I would like to be in with uh, sharing with you is a well-known quote from Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Prabhupada in a letter that he sent to Sri Sadananda Swami. Basically, his very first instruction he gave to his European disciple. And he said, let me read literally. He says, <clears throat> the first thing you have to do is to collect all what you learned, read, excerpt, felt, know. Put it in a bag, in a big bag, and throw it into the sea where the sea is deepest and start anew. Intense, right? Learning through unlearning. Don't lose sight of the context. So basically this idea, okay, my dear disciple, you are beginning this project of discipleship and you are approaching the infinite. So be aware of carrying preconceptions and projecting them into the infinite because that's not how it works. So put all that in the bag and throw in the deepest part of the ocean, so to say. So this learning through learning is, is basically this. And also another name for this is epoche, which is uh, a method found in the Hellenistic philosophy. And generally this idea of epoche is translated as suspension of judgment or sometimes withholding of assent, like don't rush into some conclusion, remain open to some further mm, idea about that. In other words, don't be so sure about what you know. Mm. We are not saying be 108% unsure about everything as we will see, that's not 
healthy either, but, but leave the door open. Don't be ex fully sure about that. Leave some, it's like shadow of agnosticism, so to say, theistic agnosticism. I don't know. So this was exactly Sadhananda Swami's approach when he himself talked Gaudi Vaishnavism to his own students. Following the advice that his own guru gave him, he asked of his audience this idea, first unlearn, first set aside what you assume to know in order to achieve this radical openness, radical personalism implies radical openness, to receive not more of the same, but something radically new. Again, one thing is revealed knowledge about the absolute. Another thing is all that is not part of that revelation. So that's radically new, and that requires a radical openness for that to be properly honored and received. So, <clears throat> of course, needless to say, this idea of unlearning to, un to learn does not imply an absolute despisal of our past experiences in total, like completely, but mainly speaks about we, we should, again, as I mentioned, we should be, I mean, we are addressing the absolute again. So we should be careful not to address the absolute exclusively through the lens of our past experiences. Mm -hmm. In the same way that, in other words, in the same way we used to live our lives before addressing the absolute, be careful with projecting that, okay, now I relate to the absolute in those exact same terms, in the same way that we apprehended reality in self-centered terms, thinking we are, I am the center, and now we will approach the absolute thinking I am the center yet, no, that's, that won't work like that. The whole center has been finally established, the real center. So again, in this sense, a big part of this new learning will be unlearning. And it's a hard one. Sometimes it's more difficult to unlearn than to learn something new without having to unlearn anything. I sometimes give the example or the story of two friends who go to learn whatever musical instrument, guitar with the teacher. He asks them, do you know something about guitar? One says, I don't know anything. I'm coming from scratch. And the other one will say, I've been playing on my own for the last five years. So he says, okay, for the one who doesn't know anything, you have to pay $5 a class. For you who have already been playing on your own, for five years, you have to have pay $25. And the guy says, why? I know more than him. He said, no, you think you know more, but you started on your own and you have acquired a lot of preconceptions that are wrong, wrong assumptions, presuppositions. So I need to deconstruct that first. I need to go with you through the process of unlearning so we can get to the scratch he's in and then started to learn properly. So in other words, we are also students so we should humbly, we should be humbly enough to admit, basically, the need to unlearn in order to further learn. The need to unknow, so to say, if we actually want to know, especially in connection to the sweet absolute. And this is not only something that is to be applied in the beginning of our devotional life. Okay, I was carrying my materialistic pre prejudices, prejudices, yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to unlearn that, uh, but after that, I don't have to unlearn anything else. So that's not like this. Throughout our whole devotional life, mm -hmm. we'll have to engage in this same process repeatedly, mm -hmm. repeatedly, because there are many ideas we have learned even in the beginning of our spiritual life, and were true and helped us, but we filtered and processed them at that time in a certain way which at some, at some point will become obsolete, will start to suffocate us. And so we will need to learn a deeper version 
of those same lessons and teachings. And that implies we may have to unlearn the initial version. It was not that the, the teaching was wrong, but probably the way we processed that, digested that, was enough for that time, but it's no longer enough for now. So that's another way of speaking about an ongoing unlearning process for in the context of further learning. So that's how progress takes shape, should take shape in our, in our practice. So we should be aware and open to deal with those circumstances. So like we spoke in our class on non-dual thinking, maybe you recall, we also spoke how dual thinking, we are not condemning it, Dual thinking help, will help us a lot in different life circumstances, but won't be of much help regarding the ultimate questions of life. Mm -hmm. So similarly, why our list of certitudes, so to say, may prove useful in the relative realm, so to say, or certain experiences we have had, we should understand that we are approaching God. God does not necessarily respond to the same laws, to the same templates and and to the same way that we think things work. No? He will have his own unique criteria, especially if we are speaking about God, if we are speaking about love. I mean, we are entering to another tattva, into another category, into another department, another space, sacred space, which will require, therefore, another language and another method to be approached. So in that sense, we have to learn to unlearn when approaching those realities. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we should use our thinking. Of course, we are not condemning that. We are not canceling our head, so to say. But in big part of using our thinking will be, okay, our head will show us its own limits and the need for a transrational method when approaching the absolute. That transrational method we call is Shastra or revelation. But even in connection to revelation, we should always remain open to further revelation. It's not that, okay, I didn't know about God, but now the Bhagavatam came to my life and I know everything about Krishna, so revelation came to me. Yeah, but never think I know it all. I know the Bhagavatam completely. I know Krishna completely. It doesn't work like that. <coughs> Sorry. So we have to remain open to unlearn so we can learn, to unlearn what we have learned about God, to unlearn God, to know him. In other words, we could say that to know God, to know God is to unknow God continually and to rediscover him on a deeper level of revelation, manifestation. To unknow God, by that I mean to shed our neat conceptions of the divine. Like the example would be like many old snakes, snake skins that are being shed and emerging, eventually emerging into the world, bare, vulnerable, new, naked again and again, ad infinitum, continuously. There is no end to that process. So to put it simply, we could say that both God and the true nature of both God and divine love remains forever beyond the grasp of all our faculties. We use our faculties as much as we can, but still those realities always remain beyond that, our reach, in the sense of we can never fully capture, grasp, control them, which is in big part how we move in life. But as Gaudiya Bhaisnav, the humility that the Gaudiya Bhaisnavs are so characterized by, ideally, Trinada, Pisunichena, one aspect of that humility should be expressed on the basis of this point. I cannot, I cannot never fully grasp this reality, so I should remain humble. 
So in other words, God, God, we could say God can be loved, but not thought. You cannot think God. You can try. And we think, of course, we use our thinking patterns in relation to him, but we should equally remember, I'm just touching one point of an infinite line. And if you say, well, but by loving God, I can fully know him and I can love him fully. But you can say the nature of love is ongoing and you can never fully love God. You can always love him more fully. And that, therefore, you can always know him more fully. And he always remains an eternal mystery in that sense. But that's the idea, no? The approach to the divine is through love, not so much through a thinking process. So in order to love Krishna, we should be willing to abandon everything we know, so to say, so we can love that one thing that we cannot think. So I'll repeat it just in case. In order to fully love the divine, we have to we have to be willing to abandoning everything we know. So we can love, not know, love that one thing that cannot be thought. The sweet absolute. In Christianity, Saint Augustine famously said once, interestingly, in the fifth century, he said, if you understand it, then it is not God. He's not understandable. He's way beyond our capacities of understanding. We can try our best and it's okay. But don't ever conclude, I've done it. I can, I understood him. If you understand, if you feel that, if you say that, what to speak, that's not God then. There's something else. That's your own idea about him. But that's our own ideas about God doesn't necessarily mean God, are not necessarily correlative, synonymous with the divine. Similarly, some other Eastern Christian fathers will say, if you can explain it, it's not true. <laughs> Extending that beyond God. If you can explain something, of course, we explain things, we try, but there always should be the open scope for further explanation. Because if you fully think, I, I already explained this perfectly, that's not true then, that's a lie. The truest thing can never be fully explained, so to say. Things are not to be explained. Thought are to be loved. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that reality is not figurable. In other words, you're going to figure that out fully. If you think you can figure out reality, then that's our prejudice. You are projecting prejudice onto the environment. I can figure out reality. That's not how reality works. Descartes will famously say, as you know, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Somehow equating thinking capacity with one's being. But in relation to the principle of divine ignorance that we are sharing here, we could say or reply to that, I think, therefore, I am not. Mm -hmm. Because our thinking capacities are not equal to who we are, to all that we can be. The more Sometimes we think so much that we get farther and farther from who we are, from who the absolute is, from what reality is about. So we should be open to know by not knowing. And in Western terms, this knowing through not by not knowing, mostly in connection to God, that's called sometimes apophysis, because that describes what God is not, sometimes called the apophatic method. What God is not. An apophatic approach, again, to, to God literally means, apophatic means to not say God or to unsay God instead of I'm saying who he is. No, I'm unsaying that. And in contrast with the apophatic method, we have the positive, the cataphatic method, which has to do with the positive terminology about expressing God's identity. God is this. God is that. The other one is to not say what who he is or somehow to not be so sure about it. 
So the point is that we go the Abhishna, as I already mentioned, we possess a lot of what we may call cataphatic stuff. Remember, cataphatic means who God is. So we have lots of knowledge, who Krishna is, his name, his family, his lila, his loves, and so on. But we should be careful to balance that cataphatic content with the apophatic approach, to not know, to unsay, to be open that God is not only that, whatever that means for us, but always much more. So Krishna is not only what we know, it's not only what we think the Bhagavatam says, whatever. He's that and much more. So we have to balance knowing with unknowing. And this same idea, apophatic, cataphatic balance, applies not only to the absolute, but even to ourselves as jivas, as our, you know, in relation to our potential as Tatasta Shakti. For example, in the Bhagavad Gita, as you know, in the second chapter, Krishna resorts, so to say, to the apophatic method, but repeatedly saying the, what the Atma is not. The Atma cannot be killed, the Atma cannot be burned, the Atma cannot this, it's not that, it's not that. This is not the Atma. But finally, when Krishna actually says something positive in cataphatic terms, so to say, what the soul is, interestingly, he can only basically only repeat three times the word ascharya. Ascharya means amazing. So the soul is amazing, 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 which is another way to continue saying you cannot ever figure out what the soul is. Krishna himself is saying that. So what to speak about us figuring out all that we can be, which is our potential as jivas. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Maybe someday will come that we will just repeat that word over and over again. And that will be the highest level of wisdom. <laughs> Not too many words required at that point. So therefore, and as we can see, this idea of knowing through unknowing is not only limited to our approaching God, but even to ourselves, and we could extend, therefore, to how we relate with one another. For example, another way in which this unknowing will express itself will be in being free ourselves from the tendency to judge another person conclusively at least fully. Of course, we, we need to have some judgments about reality. And we can scrutinize, scrutinize sorry, a person's actions, so to say, wake them in our mind and reach some conclusion, determine, okay, their deeds were correct, incorrect. I mean, we need some criterion to move in life, but we should be very careful not to conclude absolutely about who the person is, where she or he will be. You cannot just judge the person in full, complete terms, and much less ascertain the, the future or even eternal destination on the basis of where do you think the person is at present internally. So that's another way of embracing this principle of unknowing, unlearning. Okay, I'm seeing something, but I won't rush into concluding that's a big temptation. That's playing God again. So in other words, we need to balance knowing with unknowing. By unknowing here, I do not, again, I, I, I refer to not needing to know in every sense of the term. Like that means I know unknowing. And to be okay with coexisting with mystery, with unknowability. That I mean that by unknowing, I'm not meaning burn all your books and don't, don't use your head, but just do, do not feel the urge and the need to know everything about everything. So we need to balance knowing with unknowing. If we don't unknow God, as we mentioned, or us, 
or anything for that matter, if we don't learn to unlearn, know through unknowing, then we won't be able, especially the divine, we won't be able to know him in greater detail. To love him, to love him, you have to remain open to all that he can be to unknowing. No? So in this way, all saying must, we could say, all saying must be balanced by unsaying. Unknowing must be humbled by unknowing. Mm -hmm. Because we can never say enough about that. Vedanta Sutra almost begins in saying that, Ikshater Nashabdat. There are no words that can describe him, basically. You can never say enough about him. It's not that let's stop talking about him, but let's talk as much as we can about him while remaining humbly aware. I will never be able to say enough about him. The more I talk about him, the more I realize how little it can be said about all the mystery that the divine is. That's humbling experience. So we have to balance this too, knowing and knowing. Without this balance, spirit religion, Gaudiya Vaishnavism included in any other tradition, religion without this balance become invariably arrogant, exclusionary, uh, even violent, like a totalitarian regime that can happen. So <clears throat> this notion, just to conclude this first section of knowing through unknowing, this notion of learning through unlearning, knowing through unknowing, to, to, to invoke a further example, could be compared to the Zen notion of koan. Maybe you know about that, you have heard about that. What's a koan? A koan is basically a little, let's say, impossible, paradoxical riddle that, that one cannot resolve by normal means of logic, by the way you, you usually solve everything, solve, quote unquote. One example of a koan is famous one is, What's the sound of one hand clapping? And of course, you will approach the question through your normal method of understanding and solving everything logically, and we'll conclude you cannot have clapping with one hand only, so there are there's no sound. But the koan is implying there is a sound. So the point here is again the koan will appear illogical, this or any koan. Why will appear illogical at first sight? Because our reason proceeds within structure perimeters, so to say. Outside those perimeters, however, a koan is not illogical. A koan is not inconsistent. It has its own logic, but for that we have to leave certain comfort zones, certain way through which we understand everything. So in order to solve a koan, one had to be literally thrown beyond one's certitudes, beyond one's ego securities, beyond one's comfort zone, logic comfort zone, so to say, to return to a childlike openness, be thrown into a new area with a new laws, new criteria, new logic, and that openness so we can be thought again, thought again, so we can let go of our present way of that we are so sure about how things work and should be understood. And of course, this takes some time. This process takes some time, like with everything. For example, in the case of a koan, it is said that the shortest time in record, at least that in which a koan was solved, was overnight. So they take some time. You can see you cannot solve that in five minutes. And the longest time was 12 years. So it's an ongoing process and engagement of trying to decrypt the reality and, and enter a new area, a new way of perceiving things. So this is similar to this idea of knowing through knowing. Therefore, when, when approaching the unbounded, so to say, nature of reality, we should remain koan-like, if you want to adopt that new word. Or if you will, in the words of Jesus, 
childlike, he will say. In fact, Jesus, one of Jesus' favorite visual aids, so to say, is, is that one of the child. And every time that his disciples get into head games, Christ generally puts a child in front of them, invokes that image to bring them back to that childlike openness. So we should end as we should get this idea of childlike, not childish. <laughs> we are already too childish, but we should become childlike. Paul Ricoeur speaks about this in terms of the first and second naivete. So childish and childlike. In the beginning, we will be childish, but at the end, we should become childlike. And something in between has to take us to that final stage. In the beginning of our journey, we may need to feel a higher dose of certainty, a sense of knowing that in my first book, Inherent or Inherited, I, I, I referred to this in the introduction to it, and I refer to that as the first naivete. We are naive, we are innocent, we are all childish, not childlike yet. So there is an innocence there, but it can also be a dangerous innocence because in this first naivete, you don't know, but you may think that you know. So that's part of the naivete. But after this first naivete will come an intermediate period of integration of complexity, what I like to call it, of integration of perplexity even. Only after inter this intermediate period of integration will come the second and final naivety or the childlike final blossoming where darkness and light can maturely coexist with all these paradoxes are properly integrated, knowing and unknowing and nourishing each other. Love is ruling and is making us know what we actually need to know, what we actually need to know, which will be what we can know through love. And we will know that thing so much when we love, when we reach that second naivete, that on so many levels, we may seem like ignorant people. And the perfect example of this are the Brajabasis. They are not childish, and they have gone through the intermediate stage of integration of complexity and perplexity, and they are achieved this childlike eternal status of apparent ignorant in the Leela, mm. uncivilized village people, mm. but being having the highest type of wisdom. But they know so much because they love so much Krishna that they, it seems that they don't know at all. Mm. That's a very interesting paradox. But again, to go from the first naivete to the second one, from childish to childlike, we have to go through an intermediate period of integration of complexity, generally characterizing the Madhyam Bhakta, the intermediate devotee. And in that stage, we will be exhausting and unlearning our normal ways of procedure, so to say. So we can empty and open ourselves for a new method, for a new language, which is that of divine love. Again, that requires some training. <laughs> and we can call that language of divine love also the language of paradox where paradox can, we will be coexisting with paradox forever in a very mature way. And so let's go there now, since we invoke the term paradox, let's go to the second part of today's talk, which is coexisting with holy paradox. Remember the title of today's lecture is Knowing Through Unknowing. We already covered that one on some level. Paradox and chaos. So let's go to the second part, how to know through paradox or how to coexist with holy paradox. So what's a paradox? Let's first of all define that. Interestingly, some interesting definitions are there. For example, paradox is a 
and I'm reading literal definitions, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. And there's another definition interesting that goes even beyond this one and says the paradox is a situation, a person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. So reality itself is a paradox, which is unpredictable, which is paradoxical, combining contradictory features and qualities which coexist. And reality ultimately is a person, the ultimate reality. We call it Bhagavan, Sri Krishna. So Krishna, God himself, is a paradox. And we also, as we will see, <laughs> so we are a paradox. It's not that the paradox is somewhere out there. Someone is there, someone is a paradox, and we are suffering it, going through that. We are a paradox. God is paradox. Reality is paradoxical. So we have to learn basically to coexist with that. Let me share a few, a brief quote from my the introduction to my first book, Inherent or Inherited, which comes in the, again, the first section, the introduction of it, I'm just copy-pasting some sections here in connection to this idea of coexisting with holy paradox. So it says like this. <clears throat> Unless and until we are duly introduced into the realm of paradox and gain some universal grounding in such gray areas, greater inclusivity will not be attained until unless we do that. And thus we will lack the necessary hosting capacity in relation to the highest prospect of spiritual exclusivity that is found in a place such as Braj, the land of love divine, and final converging point of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. There in Braj, we will find the fullest and most perfect synthesis of seemingly contradictory elements, such as intimacy and majesty, all of them coexisting without any conflict whatsoever, embodying an ongoing creative tension that so much defines the very word prem, something that moves in a zigzag way because it acknowledges, embraces, and harmonizes everything in its wake. This is Lassila Maharaj's definition of this famous verse of Rupa Goswami, Hari Bhagati Premna Shabhavakutilava, but prem, love, divine, moves like a snake in a crooked way. So Srivastava say it moves in a crooked way because instead of going a straight line, it moves like this in zigzag because it's encompassing and embracing and integrating everything, becoming it part of a higher version of itself. Christian scholars have termed this form of epiphany, which so much characterizes wise love as coincidentia oppositorum in Latin, or that moment where after duly undergoing the perplexing rite of passage to maturity, things that normally seem opposed coincide to reveal an underlying unity. Coincidental positorum, coincidence of opposites, what we saw as opposition, oppositional, contradictory, <coughs> and clashing with one another now becomes connected, integrated, and reveal a new layer of underlying unity integration of complexity and arrival to this childlike state, Gyansanyavakti of Vrindavan, our goal. So reality is paradoxical. God is a paradox himself. Krishna in the Gita says in the ninth chapter, for example, he's saying all beings are in me, but I am not in them. That seems contradictory, but that's who he is. In, in the ninth chapter of the last canto in the Bhagavatam, we hear things like, 
I know Markandeya reaches inside of Krishna's body. Mm -hmm. Or, or not, the, and not the opposite, or what to speak when Krishna is showing Yashoda unlimited universes inside his mouth while he remained inside the earth. But also the earth was inside of him, and he was inside that earth that was inside of him, but he remained outside there. <laughs> so that's perplexing. Again, that's a paradox, and we have to coexist with that. In fact, most of life's life's epiphanies, we could say, belong to the realm of the counterintuitive. It's not that epiphany will make sense in the normal way. That's what we call it, epiphany. It's counterintuitive, but it makes sense in a deeper way. So we should, you should remember, we should remain open to that possibility. Then we should become accustomed to coexist with that which may seem contradictory, may seem un unsolvable, or impossible to reconcile, but which has the potential to create a new level of harmony mm -hmm. if we adopt the proper method, the proper stance. Mm -hmm. So what's that proper method and stance? Another name for that, we could call it patience, if you will. <laughs> that's basic, basically patience. That's what it is. Try to think for a moment. What's patience? Patience, proper patience means the willingness to coexist. Mm -hmm with those things that we that you cannot control, the unknown, the paradoxical, while deeply trusting that. There is something that comes to my life, knocks my door on my door. I cannot control it. I cannot do anything about it. I have to be patient, but I have to trust it while, while waiting, so to say. It's not just waiting for, for it to change and start being as I would like it to be. No, trusting, waiting, openness to paradox. <clears throat> so that's basically the price to, to pay for living in the bigger picture, patience, to maybe hold a bit of doubt and anxiety, as Richard Rowe will say, hold a little bit of doubt and anxiety about the exact how, if, when, where, and who of it all, but never the that and the why of it all. So if we cannot know when, will be this happening, where that will be happening, how this is happening, I don't know. But why and, and, and what's the thing happening, I don't have a doubt that this is from above, it's blessing is for a very deep purpose. So paradox, again, we are speaking about coexisting with paradox. And of course, I never say the word easy. No, this is not necessarily easy. Why? Because paradox is undermining uh, the dual thinking, the way we used to think see most of our things. So paradox undermines dual thinking at its very root. Remember the Cohen example on how it takes us somewhere else. So that's because why the dualistic mind with paradox comes, generally dualistic mind is immediately attacking paradox. It's not welcoming it. because And it will just label it, okay, paradox, now paradox means weak thinking, confusion, separate from hard logic. But that takes us to underestimate, again, the value and need for paradoxical thinking. So it's that's an interesting way to talk about. We need to develop paradoxical thinking. <clears throat> In this connection, there is one quote from Alan Watts, a philosopher. So he said, I'll read it literally. Alan Watts is saying, the loss of paradoxical thinking is the great blindness of our civilization. That's the first line, wow. Try to 
I'll repeat it again and try to think deeply about this. Some rumination, some lectio divina. You can put pause and ruminate on that as long as you need. The loss of paradoxical thinking is the great blindness of our civilization, which is what many of us believe happened when we repressed the feminine side of our lives as the inferior side. Another interesting line. One in connection to the other. Lost with the paradoxical, lost with the appreciation for the feminine. It was a loss of all subtlety, Alan Watts concludes, discrimination and capacity for complementarity. And I will personally will add that in our Gaudiya community, I personally feel that we are being way too masculine and therefore too unwilling for paradox again, because if loss of paradoxical thinking has to do with repressing and undermining the feminine side, then too much masculine side is too much, as we will see, order, not openness to the paradoxical. So we need to bring that back to our DNA, reclaim our Gaudiya DNA, so to say. So in this connection also, we could speak of paradox, a few more words because before we turn to the last section. We could also speak of paradox in secular terms, not necessarily limiting this discussion to the religious realm. For example, there's something known as the Richardson effect. Maybe you know about that which is basically the paradox that the more accurately you try to measure some things, the more complex they become. Instead of resolving into order and clarity, ever closer examination reveals only more uh, and more splendid, what to say, detail and variation. So that's called the Richardson effect. The more you try to, in other words, to understand anything, the less you are understanding it, the more complex it reveals itself. And scientists, in fact, they are, even if they may not belong, some of them, to the religious realm, some of them, they're always in the open. That means to be a scientist. scientist they're always open to revisit mm, and to change their stances, their methods to understanding reality. And while scientists have their stance, we religious people sometimes are usually too sure about what reality is. Again, an overdose of certainty. Mm. Or if we don't know how reality is, at least we are too sure sometimes how reality should look like. And what's the result of all that for us religious people? <clears throat> well, we can put in the words that we lost, we, loss of chamatkar. Chamatkar means astonishment, wonder, this active element that gives sense to life. But we should never lose our sense of chamatkar for sure. No, we, we start being dead in the moment that chamatkar becomes, we are bereft of that. Mm. Rasa sour chamatkar, says Kavi Karnapur. The essence of rasa is chamatkar. This experience of astonishment and wonder and awe. Mm. Mm. Bhagavan is rasa himself. Rasa by half. Therefore, if we lose chamatkar, we are losing our relationship with God. Mm. Mm. He, and he himself is paradox personified, as we mentioned. He's not only... Rasa personified, Rasa Baisaha, his paradox personified, he's the very seat of hundreds of mutually contradicting, conflicting, so to say, potencies, which is no conflict at all in his life. That's paradox. And by extension, the same pattern of paradox can be even found in the material world by extension in one of his potencies. For example, let's share some examples again. 
to the secular natural world and how paradoxical realities are there and how therefore paradoxical thinking should be invoked. In the, for example, in the realm of Ayurvedic herbs, we find that some of them have the power to subdue opposing doshas simultaneously, which from a logical point of view, it should be impossible <laughs> for any single herb, basically, to possess properties that are self-contradictory. But Ayurveda uh, recommends that, like herbs, like how's his name, like Haritakal, Haritakal, uh, which has the power to quell all three doshas simultaneously. So again, paradoxes arising here, not from what we don't know, if we want to talk about God as an eternal mystery and we don't know, but also paradoxes coming from what we do know, at least, quote unquote, on some level, we know natural world, like the examples coming from, from this realm that we can investigate, research, and prove, yeah, this is paradoxical. Therefore, we could clarify that all the phenomena that is inconceivable to the rational mind, like the examples have, we have shared from Ayurvedic herbs, that something is inconceivable to the rational mind, that doesn't mean that it's illusory. It's just paradoxical. So our rational mind has to learn that language, probably first unlearn some other language and then learn that one. Let me share a few more examples just for you to know that this is not limited to the realm of Ayurveda. <laughs> for example, with water or objects like or liquids, generally objects, they're generally, they expand when heated and they contract when cooled. General law, the rule, so to say. But water displays anomalous behavior. If you can do that, your, your own experiment. I'm not creating that. When water is cooled below 4C, instead of contracting as it's supposed to happen, it expands. And this continues to zero, zero degrees. So again, this is outside the normal bounds of logic, basically. But to consider such a thing an illusion will be foolish. Again, it's just paradox. And you can prove that in the laboratory, paradox in the laboratory. Or also we have the famous example of light like being both in quantum physics, like will be described, and it's a fact, is both particle and wave, which on certain level of logic doesn't make sense again. And if this is true of physical light, what to speak then about the original light, the light of lights, that's even more true, even more paradoxical. Krishna is saying in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, my abode is not being <clears throat> illumined, illuminated by light. It has its own light. It's another light there. It's another level of paradox there. If light here is paradoxical, both particle and wave, the light of lights that is there is even more paradoxical. So we should be trained not only there, but here to coexist with the holy principle of paradox. So if these kind of paradoxes are possible with Ayurvedic herbs, with water, with light, what to speak again of the very source of all these ingredients with the very source of reality itself, how much this same principle applies. Mm. Mm. So both in the realm of religion and transcendence, paradox is there. In the realm of natural world and science, religion, paradox is there as well. Mm. So in, in that sense, that, that will be a very interesting meeting point for both faith and science to have deep dialogue throughout, throughout, the, throughout the principle of paradox. In fact, we could say that science and faith 
can actually meet. They are not against one another. But this meeting will only happen with proper humility, proper awe, wonder, chamatkar in the realm of paradox. And not only we should demand humility and all this stuff from the scientists, but we as religious people, as we try to be, we should also be embracing this principle of wonder in connection with paradox. Science can show us the mystery, so to say, of physical reality, and they do that very interestingly, and faith will show us the, the, the ultimate mystery, so to say. So both are mystery. Science faiths are pointing, showing mystery. Both are paradoxical. Both are what we may call in Sanskrit achintya. <clears throat> achintya means inconceivable. Of course, we should also know when to invoke this term achintya. We should know when to press the achintya button. And sometimes we just say achintya when we don't know what to say. But just because of trying to cover up our ego, I don't know, achintya, achintya, don't think about it. But we, we have to think as we are promoting here, but we have to know when to stop thinking. And sometimes we invoke the term achintya to stop thinking at the wrong time, so to say. So the Gaudian notion of achintya or unconceivable implies not that you cannot conceive anything at all, but those things that are inconceivable can become conceivable at some level by revelation, by Shastra. Without Shastra, you can have a, a clue about certain things that are not revealed through that medium. But again, if I go to Shastra and what was inconceivable becomes conceivable, I should be careful to also not conclude, oh, now everything is fully conceivable for me because I have I've approached Shastra. No, no, still reality will remain a paradox. Paradox will remain with us there eternally. And we need to humbly coexist with that. So in conclusion, in this section of how to coexist with holy paradox, we need to embrace it. We need to embrace sacred paradox. <clears throat> Sorry. So we, we need to welcome enigma, if you want to put it in other words, and, and coexist with that. There's no need to know and figure out absolutely everything. This, the Buddhists and masters will say very nicely, they say, do not plunder the mystery with concepts. There are concepts that are useful on some level, but the mystery is mystery. So don't try to throw your concepts onto the mystery. Do not plunder the mystery with concepts. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, at the same time, this unknowing, this openness to remain in this liminal space, so to say, this unknowing is never less. It's not that you know less by unknowing. In fact, we could say the opposite. We could say that to know anything fully mm -hmm. is always to hold that part of it which is still mysterious and unknowable. You know more than, you know how unknowable is certain aspects of reality, yourself included, your potential. So by unknowing, my point is we get to know those things we will never know otherwise because we open ourselves from a certain way and place that allow us to know from a different place also, not only in greater quantity, and of course, while we surely need to know some things, as we mentioned, we know we need certitude on some level. Our knowing, as we mentioned, needs to be balanced by our unknowing. Our saying has to be balanced by our unsaying. Or yet in another terms, going to the last part of our class today, order needs to be balanced by chaos. So let's go to the last section of today's talk. We will be talking about chaos and order. 
Another way of referring to unknowing, unknowing, and so on. Remember the title of today's class, Knowing Through Unknowing, Paradox, and now Chaos. I'll also will speak about order, because as we are mentioning, we need to not go to extremes, but learn to balance. Know, unknow, say, and say, chaos, order, and so on. <clears throat> so when we speak about chaos and order, of course, these are a particular way of addressing the issue, a particular terminology, and different people resort to this terminology in one way or another. For example, Richard Rohr speaks about order, disorder, another way to say chaos, and reorder. Hmm? Or in its own way, Jordan Peterson speaks a lot about chaos and order as well. And he's based on the work of psychologists like Carl Jung or other scholars who have studied the main religious myths and symbols through, throughout different traditions and cultures, and who also express themselves in these terms, these two terms, chaos and order. And so today I'll be mostly referring here to Dr. Peterson's work <coughs> in this connection, which somehow includes the main perspectives of the other authors I mentioned, like Carl Jung and so on. So in this case, when we speak about order, so please follow me, this order is connected to the idea of knowing or certitude, as we spoke in, in last class. That I, we mentioned we need the idea of knowing, the idea of order, we need that. And chaos will be connected to the idea of unknowing, that as we also mentioned, we also need. So, and as we also mentioned, an excess of any of both, an excess of any of both, knowing, unknowing, chaos, order, can be dangerous. For example, order, which is a masculine, as we mentioned, quality, if it's taken too far to extreme, out of balance, order can manifest itself in a destructive way, in a terrible way, like in totalitarian regimes, dictatorships, concentration camps, too much order, too much control. That's an excess, an extreme of order. And similarly, of course, too much chaos Disorder and unknowing uncertainty can be terribly disconcerting if it's not balanced by order. So don't lose sight that our proposal is not one extreme nor the other, nor black and white. Another word for chaos, seems for us sometimes chaos entails some negative connotation, but it shouldn't necessarily. Another word for chaos could be openness. Maybe that's more user-friendly. <laughs> Openness, which is a pattern that we clearly see in nature, both of them, order and chaos, order and openness. Not only we will, we will see a very clear universal order, but simultaneously we can see openness in the universe, an ever-evolving, so to say, an unpredictable pattern where things not only are, but can become possibility, the realm of potential that has to do with openness or chaos in this case. And again, both in faith and science, there is no order without openness and no openness without order. They both need each other. There's a complementary work at place here. Both symmetry and surprise, so to say, are closely bound together in the fabric of reality. So we should learn again to acknowledge What's the fabric of reality made of? Mm. Symmetry, order, surprise, chaos. Mm. 
So order in itself is not enough. Imagine if everything happens as you will like. You will be the first person to be bored with that, to complain, to go crazy at one point. So that order will take you to a form of chaos, so to say. And we cannot be stable, safe, safe, and without any change at the same time. Because again, there are so many vital things that we need to learn in life. So order in itself doesn't allow for the potential impossibility that the chaos offers, so to say. But again, chaos can be too much. We cannot tolerate something that is overwhelming us beyond our capacities and at the same time remain open to learn and grow what we need to learn. So we need to balance one another again. So we need to have, in other words, one feet, one foot, sorry, in what we have learned and the second foot on what we are exploring and learning. One feet needs to stand between, we need to stand between knowing and unknowing, between fact and possibility, between order and chaos. We need to have one foot in each of these places. Comfort zone outside of comfort zone. Whatever the term you want to invoke, that's secondary. But I hope you get the gist of it. So as we mentioned, the idea of order is typically related to the masculine. And chaos is related to the feminine, to the realm of unknown, of possibility. Because that, that we, the things that we know as something born, something is born out of the unknown, so to say. It comes from the mother. The mother is the source of what's born. What's born is what's known. The source of what's known is unknown in that sense, in a positive sense, of course. Chaos, chaos in a positive sense represents <clears throat> possibility itself. Again, you can see it's not, it, it's not at all something negative. Possibility itself, the source of ideas, the, the mysterious abode of gestation, so to say, and birth, like the womb, like Pandora's box. Don't know what will come from that, but it's source of potential and source of possibility. And in that very box or in that land of the unknown is where it lies, our brightest potential is lying, as I always like to say. But sometimes just because our brightest potential is unknown to us, we are terrified about it. We are not only terrified about our darkest potential, we may be terrified about our brightest potential just because it lies in the land of the unknown. Merely because it lies in a place that is unknown to us, we are terrified about it. So again, we need to befriend the chaos planet, the chaos territory. We need to go there. I mean, we need to go there to self-actualize ourselves. Because in the unknown, there is our potential waiting for us. There is a treasure if you want to invoke some archetypal type of symbolic language. There is a treasure waiting for us, the treasure of possibility, the treasure of potential. But the treasure is guarded by dragons. They are unknown. You have to go there. Please follow the symbology of the language. In fact, at the edges of the medieval maps, maybe you can see some of them. It was frequently written at the edges, a warning, like says, here be dragons. Like this is beyond our scope. We don't know what's going on there. It's beyond what we know. It's the unknown dragons. But we need to confront those dragons. When we can do confront them, when we approach the edge of our comfort zone, you start to access liminal space, so to say. So in other words, 
chaos, again, it's not something bad. Chaos is just all that exists outside of our comfort zone. And that's our potential. That's our possibility. It's all that lies. Chaos is all that lies outside of the comfort zone or the order zone where everything is as I like, so to say, as I, 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 I'm trying to be. And we need to confront that, those dragons. We need to embrace the unknown in order to become all that we can be. In Christian words, if you want peace, prepare for war. If you want to become all that you can be, face the dragons, confront the unknown. Another famous symbology here is in the Pinocchio story. Chaos represents the deep ocean bottom to which Pinocchio budgets traveled to rescue his father from Monstro, which was this whale fire-breathing dragon, so to say. He had to go to descend into the dark. Whatever the language, I hope you get my point. That journey into darkness is, and, and the rescue, like the hero's journey, if you will, <laughs> is the most difficult thing for a puppet to do. Remember, Pinocchio was a puppet and he wanted to become a real person and stop being a puppet. Hopefully you follow the analogy. If you want to be a genuine being in the world and stop being a puppet like we may be, then you should face those dragons. You should embark upon that journey. And this journey also has a lot to do with the idea of harmony. Harmony. Harmony doesn't mean everything is always nice, as I would like. That's not harmony. Harmony means the capacity to harmonize chaos and order. That's harmony. The synthesis, proper synthesis of things that apparently are contradictory and like notes in music that may apparently go are different, but put together in a certain way, create a new sense of oneness. So it's not only har harmony means to harmonize, but there are so many levels of that also. It's not, okay, I reach harmony, but there's not only that there is harmony and disharmony. There are so many levels of harmony, so many new layers of further synthesis to be attained. And so many ways in which chaos and order will work with each other over and over again. Let me share a few words from Jordan Peterson in this connection. He says, when things fall apart and chaos re-emerges, we can give structure to it and re-establish order. In other words, we need to confront chaos and turn it into productive order. Or in the case of an order that has become too restrictive, then we should know when to reduce it to chaos and render such order productive once again. When you voluntarily confront the unknown, you gather information and build your renewed self out of that information. So it's a very clear point here. The need for to invoke chaos when order is too much, the need to invoke order when chaos is too much, and how to turn all that into productive in a productive situation over and over again. In the Bible, this is very clear through this history of Noah, Noah's ark, ark is in English, and the deluge. So you have to build an ark through the emerging chaos. The universal deluge is like the emerging chaos, and the building of an ark is the order in the midst of that. In the Bhagavatam, we have a very similar 
nuance like version with the Matsya avatar and Satyabrata Muni. There is this deluge for seven days, destroying all life. And he, Satyabrata Muni, is instructed to build an ark with herbs, humans, animals. Again, emerging cows appearing, an order needs to be invoked in that context, a proper confrontation of the unknown, and so on. So, well, chaos, chaos have to mostly has is more related to the unknown order. Let's go to order for a minute. Of course, order mostly has to do with explored territory. Again, the idea of certainty of what of what we can know for sure, at least on some level. Order is the place where the behavior we could say of the world matches our expectations our and our desires. The place where all things turn out the way we want them to. Again, on some level, that's necessary. We are not against that. Too much of that becomes totalitarian, so to say, but we need that on some level. But on another level, again, if we go too much, too far with order, order can become tyranny, order, an excess of Order can become stultification when when the demand of um, for certainty and uniformity becomes too one-sided, too unrefined by chaos. So to say, order needs to be refined by chaos. So going back to our previous class, you may remember, let's be careful with an excessive certitude. Let's be careful with an overdose of certainty. Instead, let's embrace uncertainty and doubt as synonymous with sacred creative faith with proper humility. <clears throat> so let's put it that way before, before finishing this section. Again, about chaos and order and the importance of balancing, each of them balancing each other and we inhabiting the two of them. We eternally inhabit order surrounded by chaos. Basically, we are coexisting with the two of them. We eternally occupy known territory, but we are surrounded by the unknown. And it's okay. That's not a problem. And, and we experience, in fact, we experience very meaningful engagement when we mediate appropriately, properly between the two of them. That's basically the role of the mystic, of the prophet. And all of us are called to become such. Someone who is mediating properly between these two realms known and unknown, chaos and order. When you properly stand with one foot in each of these places, you will experience this meaningful engagement with reality. That means to be a balanced person. In other words, to be a balanced person means to have one, to have one foot firmly uh, planted in order and security that we need, and the other foot firmly planted in chaos. Remember, possibility, growth, potential, adventure. The two of them need to contextualize each other, so to say. And, and as I already mentioned also, in general, I think that as a community, uh, we Gaudiya Vaishnavs need to become more adventuresome, need to be more planted with one foot on the chaos, chaotic side, chaotic side, so to say. Because sometimes we end up engaging in an overdose of certainty, an overdose of order and comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, again, do away with all the creativity, with all the potential possibilities, and all the bright potential 
that waits for us in the land of the unknown. And we need to attain that bright potential, not only as individuals, but also on a community level. The need is calling us for that. So it's important that we increase our courage and our vulnerability, which is synonymous with courage, and, and, and inhabit those lands more and more. <laughs> so let's go to a conclusion section, as usual, a few words of wrapping up and closing some thoughts. So today we have continued, of course, addressing, as I mentioned in the beginning, the same issue of divine ignorance uh, through different concepts, through different terminologies, viewpoints, perspectives. Today we spoke about unlearning to learn, unknowing to know, coexisting with paradox, paradox being holy, again, not undesirable. And also we mentioned this idea of chaos and order and the importance of balancing both of them. Remember last class, last Tuesday, we, we spoke about doubt, nourishing faith, and the importance of uncertainty, and not only mere certitude. So all of these points, again, is one way of different ways of speaking about one thing. All of this is pointing to one same direction in, in, in radical personalism, which is that direction, if you want to put it some way, let's, let's try to denumb ourselves. Uh, and become more comfortable with our discomfort. As challenging as that may be, but that's the challenge we may be requiring. Let's become more comfortable with our discomfort. So if we do so, we will find that there's a deep peace coexisting with these realms, deep peace that surpasses mere understanding, mere knowing. And that peace is a real, the real mystery, not the opposite. The opposite of peace is violence. Interestingly, violence is no mystery. Violence is easy. Everyone can be violence. Violence is violence. Peace is the mystery. Violence is the default, so to say. Anyone can do it. Anyone can become violent. It's peace that is difficult. <laughs> and, and people, it's interesting. Sometimes we get the question backwards. Sometimes people ask, why do people take drugs? To give an example. That's not a mystery. The real mystery is why don't they take, take drugs all the time? That's the real mystery. Why do people live without the need of that? What do they have that they don't need drugs? That's the mystery. <laughs> so similarly, the peace that lies beyond mere understanding, beyond knowing, beyond order, that peace is the mystery we are after. And that peace has to do with this principle of divine ignorance. So therefore, let's try to be okay with not with not knowing everything, with not being in control. Remember, knowing everything has is another way of saying I'm in control. So let's let's be okay with not knowing everything, with not being in control, but knowing that someone else is doing that job. Bhagavan Sri Krishna Kijai. So allow me to conclude today before finishing with a very nice quote that I recently heard from James Finley. He's a Christian mystic and also psychologist, among other things. Uh, and it's a kind of, it's a quote that can be taken, adopted like a personal statement, like some form of mantra meditation with these words or with other words, but which very nicely encapsulate the spirit that we are trying to convey through this particular series on divine ignorance. So this quote says like this. <clears throat> 
the things I used to be certain of, I'm no longer certain of. The things I'm certain of, that I'm still certain of, I'm still certain of in a different way than I used to be certain of. And I'm fairly certain that this is going to continue. So that's a stance, statement of principle, so to say, very interesting one. So I'm no longer certain of a certain things. Those I'm still certain of is from a different place, and I'm certain this dynamics will continue in this in this particular way. So therefore, let's continue trying to embrace unknowing, uncertainty, paradox, chaos, unorder, balancing each other, and continuing with our spiritual adventure in the most balanced way brave way, intrepid way possible. So thank you so much again for your valuable time and trust in lending your ears to whatever I may have to say. And hopefully it's not me, the one talking here, but hopefully something beyond me is uh, expressing itself in the midst of so much conditioning, still present there here. So we'll conclude here today. A brief homework for those who will like to join will be in this case, let's try to meditate on how on how some of our biggest fears may be connected to our brightest potential, as we mentioned, that is waiting to, to us for us in the lands of the unknown. And let's try to reflect what do we need to do in order to discover those hidden treasures? Why I'm afraid of my brightest potential? Am I afraid of those dragons of the unknown? What to do in that regard? Mm -hmm. So we'll conclude here and next Tuesday, we will get to the third and last lecture on this series on divine ignorance, not yet the full conclusion of the radical personalism series, but we will get to the last one, third one on divine ignorance, where we will be talking about the dark night of the soul. Again, another way of speaking about what we have been talking to about in the last, in the first two lectures on divine ignorance, the dark night of the soul. It's in connection to the inner dynamics where we as practitioners in our approach to relate to God in our relationship, our project of knowing this person called Sri Krishna, which are the inner dynamics that happen. And sometimes we may feel that he has disappeared from us. We may feel that the practice is not working, that we are like stuck somewhere. And how to understand, if you are sincerely practicing, how to deal and understand those inner landscapes that seem to be dark, that seem to be obscure, and what to do with darkness and obscurity and mystery and how to recalibrate our understanding of all of them. So we'll see that next Tuesday. Here we will conclude now. Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Gaudiya Sampradaya ki jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan ki jai, Divine Ignorance ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gol Pramanand Haribo Hanchagal Patarubhisha Kripasindu Vyeva Chapatitanam Pavani Pyu Bhishnavibhunamonama Ananta Koti Vaishnava Brindaki Jai Gaur Gaur Haribo <coughs>